Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, still available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out one way or the other. We're going on today's episode. Well, welcome back, fam. Last time it was an all-Q&A show. Now we're back to the regular format. So today we're going to take your feedback, uh, a couple of good pieces of feedback, I think. We're going to go look at the uh, the beer news in the pub, uh, talk a couple of things that I've been reading, go and talk about some of our adventures in the brewery, and then in the lounge, well, we're tasting some beer, just because... Hooray! And cider. And cider, yes. Beer and cider. And then, of course, we'll give you a quick tip, something other, answer some of your questions, and get you on your way wherever where your way may take you to right now. What did he say? <laughs> <laughs> but before we try and figure out what the heck Drew is talking about, here's a word from the people who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. And as always, we're going to start off with a few announcements. Uh, Drew's got the first one for you. Yeah, and so the last episode of The Brew Files is up, it's running, it's live, it's available for your ears. And it is episode 90 of The Brew Files called Scott's Hops, part one. And yeah, I'm talking to Scott Janish all about like hop chemistry and new things that we've discovered. And we, we'll even get into in part two some more of the stuff that Denny and I have been playing around with in terms of cold dry hopping. So stick around. Listen to the first part, listen to this episode, and then just wait. Part two is coming. And wait, and wait, and wait. No, no, I'm uh, trying not to. <laughs> I'm, I have the other attitude, man. Also, we want to let you know that uh, YCH, Yakima Chief Hops, normally is uh, getting geared up to do Hop and Brew School this year because Hop Harvest is coming up. And this year, because of reasons... Uh, it's going to be a virtual harvest, but they're going to be having a lot of online sessions uh, with hop growers, talking to the people who do some of the hop processing. And they even have asked us to get on there and uh, talk about hops and home brewing. And that's going to happen September 25th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. If you want to get in on it and maybe win some cool swag from Yakima Chief, 
Go to experimentalbrew.com slash Yakima and submit your questions. We're going to pick five to seven of those to uh, answer during the program, and we'll pick a few more besides that. And all of those people will receive some cool swag from Yakima Chief. Yeah, and that will be a lot of fun. So I'll miss traipsing around uh, Yakima. I'll uh, miss all the beers at the Sportsman Lodge. Oh, Sports Center. Sports, Sports, Center. Sports Center, that's right. Sports Center. Uh, yeah. And, you know, but hey, we do what we can right now. That's right, man. Uh, I'm I'm going to really, really miss going to Yakima this year, but uh, a lot of us are missing a lot of things. So in the grand scheme of things, uh, no big deal. There you go. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA Amazon Brewers Friends or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's going to be something food service related. And we've started narrowing it down to a few. And uh, hopefully by the next episode of the podcast, we'll be able to tell you who it is. But uh, keep pledging via Patreon because your money is going to go to some charity that uh, helps support food service and brewery workers all across the United States. Uh, so, you know, keep it up and uh, we'll decide by the next time, I promise you. There you go. And, of course... It's never a peaceful episode after a Q&A episode. There's always a lot of feedback. And so now, it's time for your feedback. And our first piece of feedback actually comes from Sam Loader, who's you know one of our one of our good friends. He's from New Zealand and uh, works for Bevy, aka the Grandfather Company. And you remember in the Q&A episode we had talked about the Grandfather and Beersmith and a couple of other things, and Sam wrote in to tell us, hey, listening to the latest episode, thank you for the compliments on the app. Drew, you are correct. We have supplied Brad at Beersmith, the correct equipment profiles for all your brewing equipment. Uh, but these have been updated recently, so some people may have the old profile, which is not as accurate. So there you go. Go and look and see. Uh, you may have to update your profiles in order to get the grandfather in there into Beersmith correctly. Yeah, um, I do you think that that means that Sam has sent the updated profiles to Brad, or uh, does that mean that he just has them and you need to talk to Sam to get them? No, I think he's sent them to Brad, and he said they've been updated recently, so that tells me that they've been Oh, yeah, sure. Right, right. So if you uh, have you been using a grandfather profile in Beersmith, and uh, you should check and make sure you have the latest version of it. There you go. We got a uh, nice email from our Good buddy Dave King, who uh, we miss seeing at this year's Homebrew Con, just like we miss seeing everybody. Dave said, I just read your record-keeping article in BYO. Lots of sound advice. Thanks. I started brewing in 1995 and soon started a notebook, MS Word document, and Excel spreadsheets. A couple years ago, I started using Beersmith. And for those of you who may not be aware... We uh, write a column for Brew Your Own Magazine, and the latest one was about keeping records when you brew, because it can be really, really important. Yeah, and I've changed how I do my records recently. I now have a clipboard in the brewery that sits on the outside of the kegerator that has the recipe sheets with any notes on it, so I can just flip through and go, Oh, hey, there. Ta-da. Yeah, that's pretty good. I am just about to finish up my 12th little uh, spiral notebook, so it's Time to go get another one. There you go. And our third piece of feedback comes from Ivan Graff, who wrote in about non-alcoholic alternatives. Remember, we talked a little bit about drinking sparkling water and whatnot instead of some beer recently. And Ivan wrote in to say, I've been making hop water 
taking notes from Don Osborne's YouTube videos, Clawhammer Brewers videos, and notes from an article where Lagunius released theirs. Lagunius makes a, a hop water as well. I have it on tap, and my friends love it and mix it in between regular beers or just as a thirst quencher. I scaled it based off of what keg I have empty. And he says, I start with distilled water. I, I use the following water salts, 1.1 grams of gypsum, 1.9 grams of Epsom, 0.5 grams of calcium chloride, and 0.45 grams of baking soda, all of those per gallon. Lowers the pH to 4.6 using lemon or lime juice, and then boils for 10 minutes to remove the oxygen. I then chill to 175 degrees and then add hops at the rate of 2 grams per gallon. Lower to mid-range alpha acid hops work best. After a 20-minute hop stand, I finish chilling, rack into a keg, and carbonate. And so if you want to get some hop water, you know, that sounds like a good way to start. I actually like the idea of doing the pH change because I don't think when I've tried hop water in the past, I've ever done that. So that's kind of kind of clever. So, I mean, essentially it's making club soda, acidifying it, and then adding hops. For what it's worth, when I was experimenting with making hop teas, I tried uh, adjusting the pH to make them a little bit less disgusting. <laughs> Didn't make any difference. They were still disgusting. There you go. Well, they did have a different purpose. So... Yeah, that's true. And and I have to admit that this doesn't sound good to me, but I haven't tried it, so maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised if uh, if I have a chance to try hop water. There you go. And then uh, the last piece of feedback comes from Gabe Weiss uh, on shortening the brew day. So you remember that Bjorn had written in talking about how he's shortened his brew day, like, amazingly so. I think what he had it down to, like, 15 minutes total. Um, Some, something insane like that, yeah. yeah. Um, and so Gabe wrote in basically to say, Hey, you know, here's how I streamlined it, but without going to that same level. Uh, and he said, I was listening to the episode and I heard Bjorn's question about reducing brew day time. I have two kids and have worked really hard to streamline my brew day over the last few years. I've cut my brew day down to two to two and a half hours for a five gallon all grain batch. I'm brewing in a 240 volt electric kettle with a stainless steel basket 5,500-watt heating element gets my strike water up to mash temperatures in about 15 minutes. That's pretty good. I mash for 30 minutes, but effectively get a few more minutes of mash time by adding my grain when the strike water is still 5 to 10 degrees below mash temperatures and leaving the grain in until 175 degrees while heating to a boil after the mash. So I see. So he's effectively doing a mash out with the grain basket still in there. Uh, I don't sparge, and I do squeeze all the wort so I, that I can out of the grain after pulling the basket from the wort. I boil for just a few minutes until the hop break falls. I then add my bittering hops, stir the wort well in hopes of creating a nice hop cone, and leave everything to sit for a while. After four to six hours, the wort has cooled below 170. I transfer it to a stainless steel fermenting vessel, leaving behind the hop break and hops. The wort is still hot enough to sanitize, although I always sanitize the vessel first anyway. And I add my flavor hops in a stainless steel mesh cylinder. And he's looking at like one of the ones from Utah Biodiesel that I think we've all seen. They basically just look like a big screen T-ball. Um, and he says, which gives me plenty of surface area for the hops. I stick the fermenter in my fermenting fridge overnight to cool and then add my yeast. I could pull the hop cylinder out at this time, but I haven't tasted any grassy or weird flavor, so I haven't tried this yet. I've cut my brew day down to about 90 minutes for the first part, including measuring grain, milling, and cleaning my grain basket. And then 30 to 60 minutes for the second part, including cleanup. The beer is just as good as it's always been. My brew house efficiency is still 70 to 80%, and I'm saving hours over 60-minute mash, 60-minute boil, and using an immersion chiller. So again, you know, there are lots of different ways that you can you can kind of cut these angles so you can pull down some of your time. I think having the 240 volt definitely helps. Um, yeah, as, as you're going to talk about in a little bit. And 
I think, yeah, there's a lot that you can do here. Obviously, with some of this, you don't get some of the full flexibility, but at the same time, you don't always need the full flexibility. And as we've talked about on the show, there's lots of very good, valid, practical applications of doing you know, this sort of no-chill process, which is what he's doing. Yeah, it sounds like he's come up with a, a really efficient way to uh, get some beer in the fermenter. And that is step one. Step one, indeed. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to be over in the Experimental Brewing Pub talking about the beer life, so please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And be sure to let our advertisers know where you heard about them if you have a chance to interact with them. So we are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in cyberspace because it's a virtual pub these days. And we're having a couple beers. Uh, looks like some stuff that's kind of appropriate for the hot weather we've both been having. What are you drinking there, Drew? Well, I'm drinking my way through a whole bevy of different Saison cans that were sent to me by the fine folks over at Ham's. And that's not hams as in the land of the sky blue water. That's hams as in the homebrewers of Manatee and Sarasota, a homebrew club in Florida. I gave a talk to them uh, back in May all about saisons. Uh, and about a month and a half later, two months later, uh, suddenly there was a surprise box sitting on my porch. And I opened it up and it was full of cans of lovely different beers, including a nice actual bottle of a saison that was made by uh, J.W. Jones. And also <laughs> one that I'm going to have to save for a while because... Somebody did my Santa Claus clone and canned it in a 12-ounce can. Ooh, nice. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but a 12-ounce can of uh, Santa Claus is going to be a uh, a nice night beer. Yeah, I was going to say, that's going to be an all-afternoon project, isn't it? Absolutely. So I wanted to just give a shout-out to the folks at Hams for sending me some beer. I appreciate it. And you, sir? I am having probably my favorite hot-weather beer in the world, at least today. 
I'm drinking a can of Bitburger. Bitburger Pilsner. Uh, now, before you start laughing, yes, I know that uh, a lot of Germans consider to be uh, Bitburger the Budweiser of Germany. But darn it, I like it. It's crisp. It's refreshing. It's 4.8% alcohol. On a day when it's 100 degrees, it is a beer that uh, really cuts through the sludge in your mouth and uh, and perks you up. I just love the stuff. And I got the special 2020 football edition, strictly by chance, of course. But it's got gold soccer balls all over the outside of it. How cool. And that also makes the beer taste extra fancy. Oh, it certainly does, man. And I have some that is not the football edition, so I'm going to have to compare and see if the ones with the soccer balls actually do taste ballsier. (laughs) Well, I I was going to say, you can't really do it as a blind experiment because the variable there is the decoration. <laughs> yeah, really, man. Well, and you know, it, it is funny because this is this is Pilsner weather because where we're both at, it's over a hundred degrees or over forty-one C for uh, for our international listeners. Very good, very good. Yeah, man, and uh, I have brewed like two batches of German pills in the uh, last couple months, so uh, been going through a lot of Pilsner around here. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to later tonight when we have our club happy hour. I'm going to get to break into uh, Trademark Brewing, who we've had on the show before. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, they have a beer that they do, which is their Mexican lager that also has a little bit of lime in it. Oh, nice. And I'll tell you what, that that is that is super refreshing. <laughs> a little, little <laughs> lime, a little salt, but no, no like, no, like Goza-style sourness to it. But, yeah, right. Uh, but yeah. it's just like when it's this hot, it's going to be a freaking treat. It's it's not exactly pastry stout weather, is it? No. But, you know, I, <laughs> a couple of years ago, about this time, I did go to a bottle share, and it was about this hot again. Actually, it was hotter. I think it was like 107. And at this bottle share, just like every other bottle share that you've ever been to in your life or, or that you hear about, the big things that were coming out were people were dropping all these big, massive barrel-aged uh, stouts. And pastry stouts and whatnot. And I could have kissed the guy who uh, brought a couple of growlers of cream ale. Yeah, really, man. Uh, you know, this is, to me, this is just not the uh, weather for a big, heavy beer. Uh, if I want something high alcohol these in this kind of weather, I uh, turn to a triple or something like that. Yep. But hey, you do you. If pastry, stru- That's if right. pastry stout at 105 degrees is your jam, you do it. You know, and f- for me, a pastry stout is never the right beer, but that's me. A few of them are. All right, let's do this. Let's get into the news real quick, because, again, I, was, I talked about going doing a couple of club things. Denny and I have actually gone and talked to a couple of clubs. Uh, but right now, the AHA is trying to help people out. Yeah, um, if you would like to have someone from the AHA Governing Committee or staff speak to your club that is going on right now you can uh, set up a zoom meeting and get a speaker from the aha or the governing committee to uh, to talk to your meeting uh we kind of have a list of topics available but uh we'll talk about anything you give us a topic and we'll find somebody who can talk about it uh probably the person to contact if you're interested in taking advantage of this is john moorhead at the aha and I would bet that his email address is john at brewersassociation.org. Wouldn't you think that's correct? It might be. Uh, but regardless, we will include it in the show notes. So if you uh, need to go find Mr. Moorhead, and it is actually john at brewersassociation.org, 
uh, you can uh, email them there or just click on the link in the show notes. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, so if you guys are doing virtual meetings out there and you would like to have uh, someone from the AHA staff or governing committee talk to your club, shoot John an email and we'll get you set up. There you go. And then... Also, the other thing that's been taken out by COVID is a lot of competitions out there. Now, people are starting to try and figure out how to do competitions, either virtually or with social distancing or with trusted groups of pods so that people are trying to do a beer competition in a bubble. Well, my uh, my club, the Maltos Falcons, we've been running what is America's oldest homebrew competition uh, called the Mayfair. And that has gone on. The earliest notes I have on it are from 1979. But if you look at those notes, it seems very clear it was an ongoing effort at that point. And so the Mayfair at least is going from 1979. So it would be a shame to lose 41 years of continuous competition. So we had to cancel it back when it was actually supposed to be judged, which was actually in April. There's a reason why it's called Mayfair, but it's not because of when it's held. Um, And we've been trying to figure out how to do it. So we have decided that we are going to do it virtually. And it is coming back as a much smaller competition. And entries will open up for it on... August 31st, so by the time you hear this episode, the entries will be just around the corner. And what we thought would be great to do is, because we're going to have to do this in a much smaller fashion with sort of judges over Zoom and whatnot, um, we decided we'd go and do our throwback guidelines. So I went back into 1979, and I grabbed those guidelines that we used, and that's what we're going to judge against. And this is what I love about it. This is how those guidelines worked back then. Uh, The categories. Ale. Light-colored. Ale. Dark-colored. Stout or Bach. One category. Unusual. Lager. Light-colored. Lager. Dark-colored. And back then, they also had them separate, so you had an all-grain version of the category and an extract version of the category. We're not doing that anymore. Uh, But we're also going to add two new additional categories. Hoppy. And Belgian-y. So... (laughs) You know, this reminds me a lot of when I started brewing 22 years ago, and there were definitely competitions back then using guidelines like that. Oh, yeah. It, well, it's just hysterical, but I, we decided we had to find some way to sort of make the competition easier to manage. And given that this would be year 41, it just kind of felt, or at least year 41, it just kind of felt like it would be appropriate to do this during this topsy-turvy time. Yeah. You know what, man? I, I think it's great, and I think it's going to actually – simplify things enough to make a competition run really smoothly. Yep. And so if you want to enter or you want to look up the details for it, just go to competitions.maltosfalcons.com and you'll be able to find the entry rules there. I I just like the idea of using these old style uh, guidelines for at least a little bit of a lark. Uh, sort of step everybody away from our procrustean bed of you know rules and styles just to see who can make the best beer in that world? <laughs> yeah, I agree, man. Uh, you know, uh, years ago, uh, when Hop Harvest Time came along, Dave Wills, who runs uh, Fresh Hops, uh, put on a festival to celebrate the birthday of his company. And uh, part of the, that would be to bring in hops right out of the field for people to brew with as we were camping. And we also started running a, a beer competition for the best damn hoppy beer. And that's the kind of category I like, you know, just keep it loose. Yeah, exactly. So I'll be curious to see how this works. And uh, yeah, we're going to mostly do this over Zoom. So a pair of judges will tackle each category and each of the judges will get a bottle. 
and they'll be able to either judge together or judge remotely. We're going to do all the score sheets electronically, and then that way they can also be delivered electronically. So it'll, it'll be fun. It's a little different. Yeah, I guess it's a little different. <laughs> also, uh, Drew dug up a story that is kind of like us, it's about people who uh, have started out in one place in the brewing world and uh, ended up taking those skills and doing something completely different with us, like us who started off making beer in our garages and now we're talking to all you guys all over the world right well and very specifically this was uh, people who had academic degrees right Uh, things that would be related to sort of the idea of like hey i'm going to go teach college and who have started doing different things so there's like one uh, guy who's making kombucha uh a baker in there but the two that relate to us are richard priest from escarpment labs he's in there uh talking about founding the canadian yeast lab and then also uh, Jay Nicole Jackson Beckham, uh, who we've been known better as our AHA Diversity Chair or Brewers Association Diversity Chair. And, you know, she also does uh, Crafted for All and Crafted by Education or by, by EDU. Um, and they're both in there talking about what took them down these different paths of doing something outside of academia, but still around fermentation. So it's just a it's a nice, easy read. But, you know, it's also good to see how people sort of shape themselves. And uh, from there, we're going to the aluminum shortage. Uh, Lots of breweries, since everything started happening, have gone to canning their beers uh, a lot more than uh, they had before. And the increased use of aluminum, along with some uh, tariffs, has kind of like screwed things up a bunch. Oh, yeah. So there's basically a can shortage that's coming along. But there... And we've seen multiple people in multiple breweries talking about, hey, you know, it's it's taking me forever to get cans, right? And people are having to do different things, whether it's different labeling or, you know, sometimes even just uh, doing what Oscar Blues and Skaws is doing out there in Colorado, where they have pre-printed cans, right? They have very fancy cans that have pre-printed artwork on them. And because of the shortage and because things changed in terms of, you know, what lines took off, et cetera, they're now actually reusing their empties that never got filled for like other beers that weren't as popular and are relabeling them on the fly. So you may get, <laughs> you may get a shrink wrapped can from Ska or from Oscar Blues that if you look closely, it has different artwork underneath the label. But don't be worried. That's not a counterfeit. That's what they're actually doing to deal with the can shortage. Well, it's kind of like, uh, Getting a, a painting that your grandmother did uh, of the street and finding out that there's a Picasso underneath it, huh? I think that might be stretching the metaphor. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I tried. Yeah. I, I appreciate the try. And speaking of tries, I'm going to throw one out there on a lark. You guys know that Genesee Cream Ale is one of my uh, one of my favorite beers, one of my uh, my go-tos. And I can get Genesee beer out here, but I can't get Genesee Cream at least not anywhere near me. And I especially can't get the next thing that they announced, which was that uh, Genesee announced that they're doing a new uh, dry hopped version of their iconic cream ale. I want it in my mouth. I want to be able to enjoy this. But I live in California, and I haven't seen any availability for this. So if anybody out there can actually get their hands on the Genesee dry hop, talk to me. Please. <laughs> I know. Hey, look, why not? I got a podcast, so I might as well use it for some nefarious purpose. <laughs> yeah, right. Advertising for people to send you beer. Yep. All right. Well, hey, I think that's enough uh, news. Uh, you know, I think there was 
a couple of good things in there, and I want to know what you guys think. Particularly, I want to know what you guys think about a, a competition like the Maltos Falcons Light Fair. You know, I, I think that uh, it's going to be a hell of a logistical challenge, but probably a lot of fun if you pull it off. There you go. I'll take it. Okay, I guess that we are about done here in the pub. We're going to finish off these beers, and we'll meet you over in the library right after these messages. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back. We are sitting here in the library, and believe it or not, we're going to talk about a book, the new IPA by Scott Janish, which I haven't read yet, but uh, Drew has, and uh, sounds like there's a lot of cool info in it. Oh, no, well, I do want to make one point of order here. I haven't read it. I am reading it. Um, ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so Scott, obviously we're talking to Scott on the Brew Files uh, right now. Uh, for the next two episodes here, or actually for the last episode and the next episode. And a lot of the topic is about stuff in here. And I just really found it kind of fascinating because I've gone through and I've, I've read things like, you know, Stan Hieronymus's hops book they did for BP. And that's good. And I've also read a lot of stuff over time. What's really kind of nice about this book and the reason why I'm, I'm recommending it to people is um, it does a really good job of distilling a lot of different scientific research out there. And putting it into terms that are generally more practical for homebrewers. And now Scott's Scott's viewpoint and Scott's drive, as you heard in the last episode, has been very largely driven by trying to get as much hop oil into things for, say, like a hazy IPA. And while I don't think hazies are either mine or Denny's, uh, uh, you know, primary jam, um, I think there's a lot that can be learned in here that helps drive even sort of a good old fashioned West coast IPA, because again, it's about maximizing not only the, uh, hop bitterness, which is what we've always thought about, but also trying to maximize the hop expression. And so in the, in the book and also in the next episode of the podcast, Scott talks a lot also about some of the stuff that day and I've been playing around with, which is, you know, doing that short cold dry hopping. 
and talking about some of the scientific reasons behind it and why why they think it really works. And that's just one aspect of things to look at in terms of how to how to drive in more flavor and more aroma. So my hope is that as I'm digging through this, I'll be able to you know glean more information. We'll talk a little bit more about some more practical ideas about what to do, both from a West Coast and from a New England uh, standpoint. And uh, you know, it's and it's it's a little bit you know it's a little bit of a slow a slower read. I'm not going to tear through this thing in in a half heartbeat because it's a lot of a lot of chemistry terms and a lot of uh, intimidating 50 cent words from science. Um, but it is, it is actually still made far more approachable than I think the source research papers. So if you are obsessed with the idea of figuring out what to do about your hops, what under trying to understand what thiols do, what fatty esters do, uh, all these different compounds that we don't really tend to think about from a traditional craft beer point of view, I would say, go pick this up and give it a good read. You know, I'm, I'm interested in browsing through it. Uh, as, as I've said many times, I'm more interested in the principles than the exact uh, chemistry. But so, you know, I, I think that what I would like to do is just look through it and uh, pick up trends and, and general ideas and then play with them myself. And I'll make you a Denny guide just to help you along. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, and the other thing, not a book, but the other thing I was just reading, like literally just before we were doing this episode, uh, Dan Pixley, who we talked to on the Brew Files a couple of episodes back, from Milk the Funk, he had just posted a new piece of research that I, that I saw that was interesting, and it's all about Britannomyces and how we think Britannomyces, well, really how Britannomyces seems to be harder to kill, potentially, than we think of it. And now this study was all about wine, because for American wine manufacturers, or uh, for American vintners, Britannomyces is a scary, scary thing. Other parts of the world, not so much, but here in America... Totally scary. Don't tell me you ever brew with bread. And one of the things they're always concerned about is, okay, what can we do to make sure that Brett is no longer viable? Right. And so there's been tons of research and tons of suggested techniques, a lot of them associated around using uh, metabisulfite, right? So Campton. And, you know, what that does in terms of freeing up uh, SO4, which then keeps the Britannomyces from being able to activate. And so there's a whole thing that they call VBNC, viable but not cultural. And this is a concern because now it turns out that Britannomyces seems to exhibit, or at least some strains of Britannomyces, seem to exhibit uh, VNBC-type uh, behaviors. And what I mean by that is it means that they can still do their job, they can still recover, they can still activate, they can still do fermentation and do all the fun stuff that Brett does. But when you go and take them straight from your source samples, so say your wine, and then go streak it out on a plate of media, which is one of the ways you tell whether or not stuff can grow, uh, so it's viable, it won't grow, at least not in some cases for up to 18 days. And none of the, uh, or I shouldn't say none, but a good portion of the scientific research around Brett doesn't have people doing Brett studies on plates for 18 days. So now the question is, how many of these studies that people have looked at in the past for Brett need to be reevaluated on the fact that it seems like Brett does this trick of, or far more often does this trick of being viable, but not cultural than we think. And in other words, the way I keep thinking about it is basically uh, Brett just kind of keeps popping up like the killer at the end of a, a horror movie that everyone thinks is dead. And it turns out, yeah, it kind of acts like that. So, 
What does that mean for beer producers? It's a damn fine question. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Well, because, you know, most of this was all about, you know, Brett in the presence of uh, metabisulfite, which is, again, that's used in the wine world as a preservative and, and sanitizing agent. In this particular case, though, I don't know what that does when the majority of home brewers and professional brewers are using things like iota four or something like a star sand, you know, so like an acid product. I do, it, right. So that, that, that'll be a little bit of a curious thing to find out, but I did think it was interesting just to be able to see that. Yeah. Brett's a hell of a tougher critter than, than I think we've given it credit for recently. Well, and what that says to me is, does that have any relevance to us? Well, uh, but I, I think the, I think the big place where it has relevance is whether or not, so many of the studies on Brett are not about beer. They're about wine. And so people have, yeah. people have done, you know, sort of extrapolation from those studies to under, try and understand what's going to happen in the beer world. And so now that this is happening, there's the questions there of, okay, well, what does that do about, you know, all these wine studies that are depending upon certain characteristics that we've then built on? Does that, does that remove some of the foundations for this? And so what does that do to our knowledge about Brett and beer? So, I would I would call I this it. I would call this developing, but not necessarily something that has a direct impact just yet. Yeah, I I see it uh, as uh, an interesting tidbit of information and nothing to worry about in your own brewery. Not yet. I, I think, and I think as long as you're using, uh, as long as you're using like the acid uh, type sanitizers or IO4, I think you're fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, very few home brewers use metabisulfite to uh, to sanitize, and if they if they do, they're soon uh, disabused of the idea that that's something they should be doing. Yep. So there we go. Those are a couple of things I've been reading. Uh, if you guys know of any other books or things out there that we should be reading, uh, let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew dot com. You know me. I like to stuff more facts into my head. <laughs> Yeah, whether they're useless or not, uh, just go for it. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a stroll over to the brewery, and when we come back, we'll be talking about what we've been brewing and what's going on in the brewing world. So stick around. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold.
Okay, welcome back, everybody. We have made our way over to the brewery, and we're going to start off by talking Pilpazon. And uh, we have a, a guy, Ron Forster, who made the Pilpazon and took it down to 5% for session strength. Yeah, and he posted this back a while ago, but of course, we're still catching up on everybody's news. And Ron's written into the program before and has asked questions before, and I thought it was rad that he... Uh, he went to one of the big Facebook groups about Cezanne and posted that he'd made a table strength version of it and that it was a great summer lawnmower type beer. And you know what? I agree. It was just damn good beer to start with. So at, yeah, I think even at session strength, it's going to be even better. And of course, we will include a link to the recipe for the, well, the full strength version, um, in the show notes so that you don't have to go hunting for it. But in the meanwhile, once again, the Pilbazon keeps writing and keeps on giving. Not bad for 30 seconds worth of work. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, and you know, Annie had wanted a session strength version of this, so we'll have to make sure she knows about it, too. Absolutely. So what have you been brewing lately? <laughs> well, I actually, I mean, and granted, now this has been a whole swath of time since we've had this discussion. So recently I've been sort of not brewing a lot just because it's hot. Um, and so, yeah. I, but build up to all this was, uh, let's see, I made... A Bankish Mild, so based off of Peter Simon's uh, book, you know, the Guile Brews, I made a, a mild from 1921 from Banks, although cool. uh, my take on it. And, you know, it kind of came, I think the original gravity on it was like 1035. And wow, was, great. Yeah, and uh, used some invert syrup in it. Tastes fan freaking tasket. So it, it doesn't I, taste thin or watery or anything, huh? Well, I mean, look, I mean, it tastes as watery as a session beer is going to, like, but it tastes like a proper British ale. I think the right. combination of the water chemistry and the yeast give it some extra oomph. But, yeah, you're not going to drink this thinking that, oh, I'm drinking a nice 7.5% beer because it's, it's just not that <laughs> no, full. No, no, no. Yeah, no, but, I mean, if it's got full flavor, that's what really matters in a low-alcohol beer. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, let's see other things I've been brewing. So a big surprise, given that it's hot, I've made a, another one of my cream ales, uh, my, I dream, uh, I dream of uh, Jenny. And but this time I actually wanted to do some water testing with it. And I actually, instead of just using straight up my own water, which if you guys will remember from previous talks has a pretty high actual sodium content. And it. it's kind of weird, like 50 parts per million. Um, I actually just, blended in 30% of distilled water into this particular batch just to see if it made a, a big difference. Cause the last batch I'd done, I'd gotten actually a salty character to it and it wasn't exactly like, Ooh, yes, let's do that again. And I'll tell you what, that 30% of distilled water into the mix dropped that salt character down to, to where it's not noticeable in this batch anymore. So I, I think going forward, that's part of what I'm going to do for cool. my, my cream ale. Good discovery. Yeah, uh, and now and now what I want to do is I want to get my hands on uh, some malted corn and make a cream ale with that, just to have some fun with it. Because there are a bunch of these craft maltsters now are making heirloom malted corns. Yeah, I've seen it around, man. I haven't used it yet, but I've seen it around. And then the last thing that I ended up making was uh, what I'm calling Freya's Gold. So I've been playing around with some of the quike strains. So bootleg biology, uh, Oslo, for instance, supposed to be very clean. So I've done a farmhouse version of that, you know, so same as my table saison. And I had some of it left over. And since this stuff is really supposed to tear through big beers, um, I decided, well, why not? And so I made a, a, a riff on my Queen's Diamonds barley wine, which is just pale malt and very little hop. 
And instead of using like a British Easton to, to give it that British Barley wine character, I went ahead and I used this Oslo in it. And I ran it. I did not do what a lot of people were doing with the Quark Strains, and I didn't run it like 95, but I did run it 75. And it was still done for a beer that was like a 1080 OG. And this was also a test for how much grain I could stuff into the grandfather because it's like 19 pounds for a uh, five and a half gallon batch. So what I ended up doing was you know, 19 pounds, five and a half gallon batch and ran it at 75 and still got like 1080 and it was done fermenting in like five days. And so I've just been letting it sit in the tank and I'm going to put it into the keg shortly so I can try it. But yeah, so instead of Queen's Diamonds, it's Freya's Gold because Freya was the queen of the Norse gods. <laughs> so you haven't had a taste of it yet. I haven't yet. Uh, it's it's going to be something I'm going to close out this weekend. I'm I'm really curious to see if uh, it, that yeast is clean. Yeah, well, uh, the the test batch that I did with it, which was just the again my my saison experimental, but instead of using a saison strain, uses one of the quake strains. It was uh, surprisingly clean. I mean, there there's still a little there's still a little phenol hint to it, but not uh-huh. but not like you know say like Hornendal, right? Hornendal to me smells straight up clove and medicine. Right. Uh, so this this was very nice and clean. So I'm I've been rather pleased with it. So and what about you, sir? Well, uh, I uh, I've been making several variations of what I'm calling my light summer pale ale. Uh, it's uh, pretty much a pale ale that comes in around 5.1%, uh, pretty much all pale malt, uh, just a touch of carapils or maybe crystal 20 to it, uh, you know, quarter pound, half pound maybe, to give it a little bit of body, and then uh, really, really load up the dry hops. The idea being to kind of get some of the hop character that you would get uh, from an IPA without the alcohol, and it's been very successful. That uh, Cold dry hopping method has just been working perfectly for me. Uh, I have a keg that's been on tap now for several weeks, and uh, I haven't noticed any fading of the hop aroma and flavor at all, so I'm totally sold on that method. Uh, and that's when, you know, I've been using old malt recently. Uh, I discovered a bunch of stuff I had around, so uh, those I've been making with uh, two-year-old bags of raw pale malt, and then I decided to really go for it. I wanted to make up a batch of my West Coast mall, and I had a bag of uh, Best Pills malt uh, unopened that, you know, it's so old I don't remember exactly how old it is. <laughs> uh, I would say at least five years. Maybe and that's got to be old. Yeah, well, I may be as old as eight years, you know. But it was an unopened bag uh, stored in a sealed plastic storage tub, and the beer turned out great. As a matter of fact, it may be one of the best batches of uh, West Coast Mall I've ever made. Uh, so I was real, real happy with that. Well, you know, if you and, let that grain sit in the in the bag long enough, it kind of becomes really mellow. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know if that's what it was, man. But uh, at any rate, uh, it has uh, confirmed my belief that if you have unopened bags of grain that are well stored, uh, they can be older than you would think and still work just great. And then my uh, my latest brew, I whipped out 12 gallons of a Vienna lager just because I had uh, a bag of Vienna malt that had been sitting around for a while and uh, I wanted to use it. And it was a, a test on the new Grainfather G70, a 70-liter version of the Grainfather, 
Uh, it can do up to a 15-gallon batch. I only did 12 because it was my first run, and I kind of wanted to take it easy. So uh, that system is just an absolute killer. Uh, they have redesigned it. Uh, the bottom now has a center drain instead of a side drain. Mm. Huge hop filter over the top of it all. Uh, and the pump is extremely beefy. The pump is beefy enough that I was able to pump from the grain father to my fermenters that are probably like eight or ten feet away, and the top of them are six or seven feet in the air. And that pump had plenty of oomph to uh, pump the wort right into them. Uh, no clogging uh, with hops due to that incredible new hop filter that they have. Uh, I'm, I am just like really, really sold on that G70 after one brew. I'm going to be doing another one on it. I hope this weekend making an IPA so it'll have more grain, more hops to it. Uh, and just to, to see what happens when I get closer to the unit's capacity. But so far, uh, I think it's just a brilliant redesign uh, upscaling of the grain father it uh, it's working really really well and the other cool thing is that because i can make larger batches i took this 12 gallons and split it into two fermenters and i'm not really calling this an experiment more of a test i put uh, two packs of diamond lager into one uh, fermenter at 50 degrees and uh, one pack into the other one at, at 50 degrees and uh, just to compare what it would be like uh, and see if there's really any need to pitch two packs a, a lot of people do that uh, the first difference that I could see was that uh, the one pack took about 24 hours more to actually get really going than the two-pack batch. Mm -hmm. But once it got going, it was equally, uh, I don't want to say violent, it was equally active in its fermentation. Let's uh, just say equally effusive. Okay, sure. Effusive will do. So, uh, you know, that it, it took, uh, I would say, the two-pack batch maybe 20 hours to get going mm -hmm. and the one-pack batch uh, you know like another 24 hours past that i don't consider that a, a major lag time it was okay with me the uh, two-pack batch now after about a week has started to settle down and the one-pack batch is still just kind of blooping a little bit but i expect it to settle down in the next day or two mm -hmm. so the idea is that uh, you know when they're done and lagered and everything, uh, we'll compare gravity readings and attenuation, and I'll send some down to you, and uh, we'll do a tasting and see if uh, either one of us can tell the difference, and if so, what those differences might be. You know, like I said, it's not not really an experiment uh, as much as just kind of a, a, a test to gain some info. Well, and tests are always good, and... Just so I remember, the G70 is also 220, right? 220 volt? Yes, it is. And I had I had 220 put in because I'm using a 220 volt G30 now. The the regular normal grain father is finally available in a 220 volt version here in the U.S. And I am really really enjoying that. Also, uh, yeah, I loaned I loaned the 110 uh, G30 to my friend Brant because uh, he was real interested in trying it out. 
Yeah, I'm tempted to get some 220 in my garage so I can play around with some more stuff like that. I I think you should go do it, man. It's uh, really a, a great thing. Uh, I you know I'm sold on both of these units. The the weird thing about the G70 is that uh, the grain basket once you get that much grain in it requires either two people to lift it up for sparging. Or a hoist. So uh, when they sent me the test G70, they sent me a, a hoist also. And I have to say, man, I never thought that I would be the kind of brewer that had to use a hoist to lift his grain. But there it is. I do. It worked great. Uh, it was very slick. You know, what would also be good is that the hoist will also serve really good for when you need to get out of your chair. <laughs> yeah, except then I'd have to have my chair in the garage, and I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> well, and then I've got two questions out there for the audience, because I've been seeing more and more people talking about this. And Denny, you and I are definitely going to have to exchange some beer so we can do some tastings. But uh, the two two questions I've been seeing, one more and more I've been seeing people talk about using floating dip tubes. Does anybody out there in the audience have any experience with them? And if so, what have you been using? Because it's a curious idea to me, and some in some ways I'm wondering if it's really worth the extra hassle. I know you're thinking that too, Denny. Um, but yeah. I know some people who absolutely swear by them. You know, I don't have enough issue with pulling from the bottom of the keg to make it worth any more hassle to me whatsoever. Uh, sure, the first couple beers are kind of like uh, gloppy, but you either drink them or pour them out. Um and, you know, if, if extremely clear beer is is one of those things that means a lot to you, you know, if you're the kind of person that likes to use gelatin and all those kind of findings, biofine and all that stuff in your beer, then maybe you should uh, look into the floating dip tubes. I don't know if they're for me. So if you all have any experience with those uh, floating dip tubes, uh, let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Uh, what sort have you used and what what has been your experience? And now the second question that I have out there, and I think this needs to become a segment on the on the show here in the future, is most of us have been sort of in quarantine, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, for nearly five months at this point. Um, yikes. At least those of us like Denny and I who have underlying health issues. Um, and I've been finding that brewing has been kind of helping keep me a little sane. And I want to hear from y'all, how has brewing been helping keeping you sane? during this whole crazy ass time. Yeah. You know what? I agree, man. Uh, I, I am looking forward to brewing more and I really enjoy getting out there and taking my mind off of things for a day. The only downside is that I've got all this beer around. And I, you know, uh, I know that some of you would not see that as a downside, but uh, in light of my uh, conversation uh, of the last few episodes about stress drinking, uh, that can be uh, an issue. I finally have managed to get my willpower together, and uh, at least several days a week, I'm not doing any drinking whatsoever. Uh, and, you know, that's for a number of reasons. Uh, it was starting to bring on some health issues and just not making me feel very good. So I kind of decided, you know, if, if you're not feeling good after drinking beer, what's the point? So my solution was to just kind of like lay off a few days a week, and that seems to be working out for me. But it means I have even more beer building up. <laughs> so, you know, eventually there's going to have to be an equalization. Yeah, naturally, I'm back to following my rules, which is uh, nothing on Monday through Thursday. I was going to do that also. Uh 
But uh, it turns out that yesterday was Wednesday, and I had beer that I'd ordered at Ailsong to pick up. What could I do? I had to go out there and pick it up. And if you're at Ailsong, you have. I, I was, you know, we were pretty good though. Uh, Paula and I just split a uh, four beer taster tray, and so it, it wasn't too bad. There you go. All right. Well, speaking of tasting beer. I think it's time for us to go taste some beer. Oh, man, I am so down with that. When we come back, we're going to be over in the lounge, and uh, we're going to be doing a tasting of uh, my cider, one of the two that I made this year, and the fabled Wee Shroomy. So stick around, and we'll be right back. Wye's new Wit & Weinson private collection features three wheat beer strains ideal for summer brewing. 3191 Berliner Weiss blend is extremely versatile and adds tartness with a little lactobacillus. The highly flocculent 3333 German wheat produces clear, bright beers without extra effort. And 3942 Belgian wheat returns with its unique apple, bubblegum, and plum-like aromas, perfect for complementing your malt and hops in a Belgian IPA. You'll also love this collection for its accommodating temperature range during the hotter months. These Y-East Originals are available at your local homebrew shop from now through the end of September. Find out more at yeastlab.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Welcome back, everybody. We have made our way over here to the lounge because we're going to be doing some tastings today, and you got to be lounging when you do that, right? I know. I, was gonna say, I can't think of a better time to do it because as we're recording this, it's a weekend. It is blistering hot, and what better thing to do than, I don't know, break into a wee heavy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's also blistering hot up here in Oregon, too. Uh uncharacteristically uh, at least you guys kind of expect it down there but yeah but you know what we should start with the other one first because it's light and refreshing and won't wipe out our palates like the way the the wee shroomy was we're going what we're going to be tasting today is we're going to be tasting uh one of the two batches of cider that i made last uh october i guess it was and uh, we're going to also be tasting the infamous Wee Shroomy, which was brewed, uh, oh, I guess, around March this year. So, so you ready to go here? Yeah. Well, so uh, let's uh, let's crack these ciders open, and then we'll go through and we'll tell people. Well, I mean, while we're doing that, why don't you remind people what's special about it? Because I know you use what fourteen fifty on this, right? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> Uh, we have a whole bunch of apple trees around my place. Uh, none of them are specifically cider apples, but because we've got so many and Paula can hardly stand to see them going to waste, besides making tons of applesauce and dried apples and all that kind of stuff, we also make, uh, oh, at least a couple batches of cider every year. We make uh, one batch with the kind of like normal apples. I know there's a lot of delicious and stuff in there. It turns out uh, fairly dry and fairly tart. And then we make another batch uh, that is primarily from what we call our crab apple tree. 
They're small apples, maybe an inch, no more than an inch and a half in uh, in diameter. Very dark red skins. The juice comes out pink. Uh, and this particular batch, we missed it. We mixed it with a little bit of the uh, the other juice because we didn't have quite enough. But you can see this still has a pinkish tinge to it. It, it does, and it's. I mean, effervescent is not the word for this. Uh, this is <laughs> this is sparkling like champagne. And yeah, man. So uh, th- okay, mostly crab apple juice, then mixed in with the delicious. Is that right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, fermented with fourteen fifty, no additional sugar. Um, no tannins added. Uh, the crab apple skins put in a pretty healthy dose of tannins, which I really like. Uh, not having to add any. Yeah, but, this this does have, yeah, it has that tannin quality to it. It has that that bitterness, as they say in cider making, and it has a rich mouthfeel. I'm actually really surprised because you've got a fair amount of acid in this, then you've got that tannin, and yet somehow, uh, even though you're uh, maybe it's because you're using the beer yeast. I mean, you still actually have a remarkable amount of apple flavor and sweetness to this. Yeah, yeah, I know, man. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's what did it. Uh, I've been making cider for going on 20 years now. Uh, we got a press to go with the apple trees. And oh, oh, no, you didn't get a press. You got a Cadillac. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty nice, I have to admit. Uh, the, the Corel Cider Press, uh, it's not only gorgeous, it's incredibly efficient and easy to use. But, uh, you know, in that time, I've tried, like, you know, all the, all the, like, wine and champagne yeast, you know, the EC1118, all that kind of stuff. I've tried various cider yeasts. I've tried various mead yeasts. And a few years back, we were ready to make a batch, and I looked around, and the only yeast that I had was a slurry of 1450. So I dumped that in, and I know you're going to laugh, man, but it worked perfectly. It made the best cider I've ever made, so that's all I use anymore. Well, I mean, if if they're all tasting like what uh, this one tastes like, I can certainly see why. I'm. It's impressive because, I mean, yeah, so many... So many homemade ciders, particularly those that are made with uh, culinary apples as opposed to, like, actual cider apples, always end up kind of tasting very thin and acidic, uh, like sort of bad white wine. Yeah, right. And I love the crab apple in this. And, and so I've, I've written for years, and I wrote this in the cider book as well. If you don't have access to a giant crab apple tree like Denny does, the other thing you can do is, um, what's the produce company? Melissa's? Melissa's? They actually have started putting crab apples into the grocery stores, usually around you know the the Halloween slash Thanksgiving season. So if you can hold on to juice, or if you can start making a cider batch, you can always get yourself a small amount of crab apples and add that to the cider, and you know while it's in the fermenter or after you've done fermenting, to pick up that same tannin quality and get some more of this body. Um, what's the What's the big commercial uh, cidery in Oregon? Uh, Wandering, uh, uh, Wandering Angus. There you go, Wandering Angus. They for years did a all crab apple cider, uh, all based off of Wixens. And I've always argued oh. that if you're an IPA drinker or somebody who just likes craft beer, and you've always kind of been myth on cider, that's the one you want to get because it has so much bite to it. And this comes into that same territory. So. Yeah, well, let's and let's run the numbers here. It uh, it started off at 10:47, and as did the batch made with just the straight delicious apples. Uh, 10:45 to 10:47 seems to be what I consistently get out of my juice. 
This one finished at 0.996 for 6.7% alcohol. No sugar added, uh, nothing else in there. Uh, and I'm, I'm just always astounded. I mean, people say, you know, how do you go about back-sweetening cider and stuff? And I kind of say, well, if you get lucky enough to get the right apples and the right yeast, you don't need to worry about it. Because this doesn't need to be any sweeter, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, I think if it was any sweeter, it would be... It would, it would start to move towards that dessert side. Um, right. And where this is, like this isn't your, hey, I, I'm sitting down and I'm going to have multiple ciders type of cider, right? Because it's got enough oomph and body to it. Um, right. That it actually kind of slows you down. It's not it's not your your, your quick quick drunk cider that, that so many people know. This actually kind of <laughs> has you make, uh, make a few more uh, decisions as you're drinking it. And what's interesting is that so okay no capitalization, so nope. and you're still getting six point seven, which puts you right on that that line of what the well in the tax code is the difference between cider and apple wine, right? If it's above right. six point nine, it's apple wine. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm just actually really I'm really impressed. And no uh, no acid additions, no tannin additions because of the crap <laughs> apple. So. This is just like the dumbest, easiest cider, and you just happen to be a lucky SOB. That that is exactly what it comes down to, man. Uh, you know, I'm I'm really fortunate that we have these uh, variety of apple trees around here, and I'm especially fortunate that Paula just works her butt off every fall, going around and picking apples from all of them. Uh, generally, they do uh, get stored for oh, geez, at least a couple weeks or more before we press them, uh, doing what's called sweating, which makes the uh, juice come out a lot more easily. But, you know, that's it. Other than than her massive labor and my minor labor making the stuff, uh, that's about it. Uh, you know, we always have friends over, have a big cider pressing party. Matter of fact, my neighbors across the road uh, came down and helped us. And they took home 10 gallons of juice, and I helped them ferment it, so they made their own cider, too. Awesome. Now, it, I I missed. Did you say anything like any yeast nutrients in there, so, or was it just like literally a cake? In, and this wasn't even a cake. This was just a smack pack of 1045, or 1450, rather, just dumped straight in. And no? Just nothing else. And no nutrients. Uh, I, I don't think I did on this batch. I usually do, but I, th- I don't see anything about it in my notes. So my guess is I probably just forgot this time. Yet, um, yet more evidence that the universe favors fools. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. Uh, I'm I'm uh, very lucky that uh, that I was able to make this delicious stuff just by uh, nothing but sheer labor and no brains. Well, and then uh, the carbonation. I assume that this was uh, counter pressure filled or just a filled from a keg. The bottle. No, it was not. It was not. Uh, it was bottle conditioned. Okay. Uh, on the this was the second batch. The first batch was the uh, all delicious, mm-hmm. and what I found on that was that uh, when I dropped the yeast in my conicals, uh, there's not as much left as I would like there to be for really good carbonation. So for this batch, I added a little bit of extra yeast for uh, for bottling. But other than that, you know, it's just the the corn sugar for bottling, and that was it. And what level of carbonation were were you aiming for? A lot. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my guess, yeah. my guess would be this is like three, three point five volumes or something. That 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 was kind of like what I was going for, but you know, uh, I don't, I don't put a lot of effort into it. I just, 
I just sense it. <laughs> and, you know, I know that that drives people crazy, but after you've been doing this kind of stuff for a long time, you just kind of develop a feeling for what you need to do. And so that's what I went with. Yeah, the fact that you're talking about you just develop a feeling for Mr. You know, I want to test everything out and do repeated iterations and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to, but, but, but the reason I can do it is because I've already done that stuff, right? It's like I always say about like how I feel like I've absorbed the science and come out the other side. I kind of like know what to expect from what I do based on my experience in the past. I didn't just start off winging it like this. I did a lot of testing and uh, note-taking and stuff like that in the past to give me the basis to make a wild-ass guess and see what happens. Oh, no, I get it. Um, But again, I think, again, this proves my my point and and my repeated belief that if you are going to make cider at home, you need to get your hands on some crab apples or or some bitter apples, right? Um, Yep. Or if you're lucky enough, bitter sharps. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm just actually really really impressed by how how much flavor you're getting out of those crab apples, and the fact that it builds so much structure. Now, I will say to everybody who is not fortunate enough to live on a place that has your own crab apple trees, if you do live somewhere near a an apple growing region, and so like here in Los Angeles, you know we've got a couple a couple of different areas around us, Oak Glen. And Hatchby, for instance, are two apple producers in the area. They will, every fall, sell juice, right? Uh, unfiltered cider. And, of course, every apple farm out there, every apple orchard, has weird trees. Even the ones that are just straight up, hey, we're just making apples that you can eat out of hand. Somewhere on the lot, they've got weird trees that make weird fruit. Uh, part of that is because crab apples, for instance, are actually really good for cross-pollination purposes, or actually just pollination purposes. Because uh, most apple trees need other apple trees in the area in order to be able to actually bear fruit. Um, and crab apple trees are actually really good for that. So a lot of orchards will still have crab apple trees, even if they don't do anything with the fruit. So if you are in one of these areas where you can get to the place like that, I encourage you, contact them ahead of time and tell them, hey, I want to make cider. Do you have any any crab apples or any other weird apples that you can throw into the into the juice for me? And a lot of times, at least in my experience, the orchards are perfectly happy to do that because otherwise the fruit's going to waste. Yeah, and if possible, you want it to be at least 80% crabapple juice. And let's not forget the other half of the equation, which is the 1450. Mm -hmm. Because without that, I mean, I've taken this juice and I've fermented it, say, with like Nottingham and BRY97 and, uh, like I said, wine yeast, mead yeast, all that kind of stuff. And nothing gives me the apple flavor in the final product like the 1450 does. Well, there you go. Denny's favorite. More than just good for (laughs) IPAs. Yeah, really, man. Uh, you know, I, I I know that that's got to drive you crazy, but it's the truth. What can I say? Yeah, well, hey, I mean, look, I I would love to be driven crazy, but I think I'd prefer to just have the product. Yeah, well, you should uh, you should save a little bit of that cider and share it with your wife too. I'll bet she'll like it. I would imagine. So there we go. So that's pretty good. And also, guys, do remember. I mean, even though as we're talking about right now, it's blistering hot in both of our parts of the world. Um, apple season is right around the corner. So yeah, get, get your uh, get your internet thumbs working hard to find nearby apple orchards, 
And I think you'll be surprised at how soon you'll be able to actually get your hands on fresh juice. And if you do get your hands on fresh juice, I mean, I'm telling you, it's not that hard to make cider. It is hard to learn how to make really good cider. But cider is one of those things that just happens accidentally. And so now we, we just want to, <laughs> that's true. We just want to go do it ourselves. And I, I'll, I'll give one tip. I've, I've talked about this before and I'd be curious to see. I mean, this is, this is a really good cider and really good drinking cider. Um, one of the things I tend to do with fresh juice, you know, you were talking about letting the apples sit to sweat, which is a, a fairly standard process. Mm-hmm. Um, the fruit, when it comes out of the orchard, has a lot of natural yeast on it. And right. not all of it's, you know, good yeast, right? Some of it's weird stuff. But what I've liked to do in the past when I've gotten fresh pressed juice that hasn't been like UV pasteurized or something is let it actually sit for 24 to 48 hours and let the natural critters that are coming through on that juice get some start, make a little bit of funk or a little bit of different characters and then hit them with a massive amount of, you know, good old fashioned yeast that will crowd them out and outcompete them. And that way I think at least with the, the juices that I've had, it's been an, a good way to build up more interesting character and it doesn't actually cost me anything. Yeah. We, uh, you know, it's like we do dunk the apples like in a big tub of star sand before we press them. Mm-hmm. But then we're pressing them like on an open press out in the middle of my driveway. So I'm sure that they oh. pick up all kinds of other interesting things on the way. Well, and, and but then they go, and they good, go right into the fermenter and get pitched right away. Well, and a good portion of the yeast are also sitting kind of in the cores. So yeah. a star sand dunk isn't going to get all of it. Um, oh, no, no. Just takes off the outside in case a deer came by and pooped on them or something <laughs> like that. <you> know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know we're that's la- always a possibility around here well i know we're laughing about it but uh, in times past with like some of the natural juices out there people have used uh windfall apples you know things yeah. have been blown off the trees and unfortunately they've been cross-contaminated with the e coli and people have been killed around the country from that so uh, yeah you probably don't want to be doing that no so all right from a really delicious cider to something that is a little more terrifying, and of course, with the world's weirdest, most unexpected cat from you. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had some of those around for 20 years, and I'm down to the last few, and I thought you'd appreciate it. Yeah, for the people who can't, <laughs> since nobody else can see it, and this is, after all, radio and audio, Denny has sent me a bottle of beer with a bottle cap on it that is from Bad Frog uh, Micro Malt Lager. And for those of you who don't remember Bad Frog, the primary thing about them was contract brewery that their whole shtick was based around the fact that their mascot was a frog shooting you the middle finger. Yeah, right. And I was, I mean, when I bought the caps, I was told that it's because they uh, weren't allowed to use them. The alcohol, the ATF uh, wouldn't let them use the caps. And so they put them out. I bought them at my homebrew store years ago. So we're going to move on to another beer here, which is made with ingredients that were foraged very near to where I live. This is the infamous and famous Wee Shroomy, a Wee Heavy with chanterelle mushrooms in it. So I'm going to open this one up here. Um, and credit where credit is due. The concept came from Randy Mosier. My first home brewing book was his Brewer's Companion. Um, and... Uh, there was a recipe in it. Actually, it wasn't even a recipe. It was just a label for a beer that he'd made that he called Nirvana, which was a wee heavy with chanterelle mushrooms. Uh, I figured, well, Nirvana, that's a good sign. And 
there's chanterelles all over the place here. So I started, uh, oh God, I actually started making this when I was extract brewing. So I've been making it for a long time and it's been evolving both recipe and process. And, uh, these days the wee heavy recipe comes from uh, Scott A. Bean. Uh, it's, uh, his Traquar house clone. Very, very simple recipe for five and a half gallons. It's, uh, 20 pounds of Simpson's Golden Promise. Now, remember, Golden Promise is a malt variety, not not like a type of malt or something like that. Uh, and Simpson's and Fawcett both make versions of it. There may be other people, but I far prefer the Simpson's to the Fawcett for this beer. There's one ounce of... Uh, Chocolate malt in there, or actually, I think I used midnight wheat this time because that's what I had around, just to give it a little bit of darker color. There's some uh, Northern Brewer to bitter it to about 20, 25 IBU, and that's pretty much it till you get to the mushrooms. So uh, let's have a sip. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've already had a sip. It's very interesting. The nose is the nose is uh, caramel mm-hmm. and fruit, and then. And, and, and by the way, this is actually kind of surprising at how pale the beer itself is, even with that midnight weight. I mean, of course, in the tra- Tracker House clone is, I think the original is what, just all pale with like a Scotia roasted barley, right? I think something like that, yeah. Uh, and I think it was actually, I think it actually was Golden Promise in Scott's original recipe, because right? I don't think I would have been smart enough to think of using it. Mm. So for those of you who are grossed out and disgusted by the thought of mushrooms in beer, let me tell you, the chanterelles are not like your ordinary mushrooms. They have a, a slight apricotty quality mm-hmm. to them that really, really goes well with the malt in here. Um, and the other thing that happens uh, with this beer is you take the first gallon of the mash runnings and you boil it down as you're doing the rest of the mash and the boil until you've taken that gallon down to a pint or less. Mine just looked like a syrup by the time I got done with it. And then at the end of the main boil, you add that back into the kettle, and it really, really richens up the flavor. Well, and I definitely get that caramel and a little bit of the smokiness, I think, from that process. Um, I think some of the smokiness might actually come from the mushrooms, too. It, it might. Um, but I'm getting that, I get an earthiness, but I also get, I know you were saying apricot, to me, the way it's reading to my mind, and maybe it's just because of how it's mixed in with the caramel uh, caramel flavors, I'm getting more kind of like um, caramel caramelized peaches. Oh yeah, sure, I could see that for sure. Um, and yeah, it's just weird because I mean, yeah, you say, hey, I made a beer with mushrooms in it, and you'd expect that you'd get something that tastes like you know a button mushroom or a carmini mushroom, and yeah. that is not the case here at all. I mean, like if you if <laughs> If you didn't tell me this was mushrooms, I don't think that's where my brain would have gone. Yeah, you know, and that's that's very true. And to tell you the truth, that's kind of what I'm going for. Uh, you know, I don't want this to be a beer that is defined by the unusual ingredient. I want it to be a beer that is supported by the unusual ingredient. And I say that over and over again whenever we're talking about, you know, making beer with weird stuff in it. I, I don't want the beer to be all about the weird stuff. I want it to be about the beer. Right. You, you don't want it to be a sideshow. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, a good way to put it, you know. Uh, if, 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 you know, uh, so many beers I see out there 
people get so carried away with the unusual ingredients that they're putting in. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I've seen pastry stouts and it's like, why the hell don't you just eat a donut? <laughs> you know? I mean, look, I'm, I'm the guy who plays around with this sort of stuff, so I understand it. But I, like, yeah, I've, I've gotten, I, I still hold to my idea, which is that if you're going to make something that's kind of, I don't want to say stuntish, but if you want to say something that uh, makes something that is sort of different like that. The thing I don't like is that when I see people like, yeah, hey, look, I made a donut stout and they're chucking actual donuts in there. I, yeah, right. uh, that that's not, not that's not my speed. So like the uh, the French's mustard beer, which came out and caused a lot of hoopla, which, by the way, is also supposed to be a pretty good beer from what I've read. I haven't had a chance to try it. The French's mustard beer from Oscar Blues reads very much like a stunt like that. Um, and I forget which brewery, some, uh, some brewery put out a, a, a Facebook meme that they, they wanted to do a mayo horseradish oyster stout and, oh my God. Well, remember we got tagged on this on, on Facebook. Yeah, I know. And I mean, I've used horseradish in beers. I've used oysters in a beer. And the only thing I haven't done is mayo for all the obvious reasons that one could think. And, yeah. and, but I got to thinking about it and I've. I figured out a way, I think, to make that beer work, but it doesn't involve actually adding mayonnaise. It's just like when we did the uh, the clam chowder saison. It's all about substitutions to get to that that flavor profile. That's how I prefer to do these things. But yeah, right. Our, our rule is recreate the experience, not the ingredients. Right. And so in this case, I mean, you'd be really hard pressed to tell people, oh, hey, you know, this is a chanterelle beer. With that, and expect them to come across, uh, expect them to read that into their mind. If you told people, hey, this is a, a peach or an apricot, uh, a caramelized peach, caramelized apricot, we heavy, that would get closer to the point. And then, and then you'd be like, oh, by the way, I did that with mushrooms. Um, <laughs> no. And, uh, just, just to let you guys know, Drew figured out, uh, that the five pounds of mushrooms that went into this beer, if you had to buy them, would cost about 150 bucks. Yeah, somewhere between uh, 100 to 150, which <laughs> I get, yeah, I get, I get emails from people all the time asking about making it, and I tell them, and then I say, but you know, <laughs> you may want to take this into consideration. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky cause we can find chanterelles uh, out in the woods behind my house. Uh, my neighbor, the ones that I taught to make cider are huge shroomers and go out and they took Paula out with them once and there was just this forest area they took her to that was just several acres covered with chanterelles on the ground. So I'm really lucky that uh, they bring me mushrooms, I make the beer, and then we split it. Well, do me a favor. Send me some mushrooms. Not that I'm going to make beer with them. I'd rather have them. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll see what this fall brings, man. Yeah, I mean, all the mushrooms I can find around here are, uh, uh, well, they're probably more associated with uh, what everybody assumes your hippie past is. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But um, uh, Those mushrooms are long gone. So now... Okay, you said this was five pounds of chanterelles, and I'm trying to remember what freezed or chopped, frozen, and then yeah, what I the, what I do is I uh, I brush the dirt off of them. Uh, I might rinse them very lightly if they're if they're really filthy and I can't brush it all off. But to tell you the truth, I don't worry about it too much. I know that's going to freak a lot of people out. Uh, so after I, I don't want to wash them too much because then they take on a lot of water, which just dilutes the flavor. So I, I clean them with a brush mainly. I chop them up. 
I put them in a vacuum bag, vacuum seal them, put them in for the freezer, get them frozen into a solid mass, thaw them out a couple days before I'm going to use them so they release a ton of liquid. Put all that liquid and the mushrooms themselves into a secondary, rack the beer onto it, and let it sit for probably a couple weeks at that point. Uh, somebody once suggested, uh, you know, it's like, why don't you try cooking or eating some of those chanterelles afterwards, you know, as opposed to just throwing them out when the beer's done. Uh, I did that, and let me tell you, there's no flavor left in them, which I guess is a good thing, right? Yeah, I was going to say, they're, they're sponges that have already given up everything that was good about them, so. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that just makes my life easier. I don't need to worry about reclaiming the mushrooms so mm-hmm. I can eat them. Yeah, I mean this is I mean, this is very very interesting. It, um, what'd you say the uh, final gravity was on it? Uh, let me let me see here. That would be in this book here, I believe. Yes. Okay, so it started at ten ninety. It ended up at ten sixteen mm-hmm. for nine point eight five percent. It's interesting. Uh, uh, I wish I could remember the off the top of my head what the calculation is, but so ten sixteen on a nine and a half percent beer. So I mean, in reality, we're probably still talking it's like a ten twenty five or so, um, from apparent to real. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I just I just uh, went down with the, the apparent. That's all I really yeah. care about. That's all I track. Yeah, no, and that's almost anybody should track. Because the thing I'm noticing, and this might be a combination of the sweet caramel, or not sweet caramel, but the caramel. The fruit tones, and then the ten sixteen uh, final gravity. I'm getting a I'm getting a final feel that feels a lot like sweetness. By the way, I am also getting a final feel that is that nine point X percent alcohol. <laughs> it's funny oh. you should mention that. I was just thinking to myself, whoa, I'm getting a little loopier, and I've just had a few sips. Yeah, uh, are are you sure those are the right sort of mushrooms? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm positive. But I, I, I almost wonder. I mean, see, like, my my native instinct would be say, oh, well, you know, put a little more bittering hop in there. Uh, but at the same time, if you did that, then you'd be distracting from the fruity character that you're aiming for. Exactly, but. exactly, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I used Y yeast 1728. They're Scotch ale yeast. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. It's a really great yeast. And to uh, build up uh, a cake for this, I made an alt beer with it first, uh, and let me tell you, the alt beer came out great also, so something to keep in mind. Uh, the other thing that is great about that yeast is it will easily ferment in the 50 to 55 degree range, so that's where I ran this one. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what, that is that the McEwen string? I can't remember which brewery it's from, but that sounds uh, right. I don't, I, don't, I don't think so, but I, I really don't remember. Yeah, I mean, again, I think... I think this is a, an interesting beer. I think it's interesting the fact that it doesn't scream the mushroom, right? But it does scream that flavor. Um, and then uh, was this bottle conditioned as well? Uh, yes, it was. Well, what you have is bottle conditioned. Uh, mine came out of a keg this morning. Well, there you go. Because I was going to say, yeah, I mean, the other thing is this has um, a very brisk carbonation to it. Oh, that that's interesting because the first few bottles I tried didn't. So obviously, it's gained some carbonation as it sits. That is definitely interesting. I, I, like again, it's that <laughs> you keep saying interesting. I hope you mean that in a good way. No, I do. Because uh, I mean, again, it's it's all these different flavors, 
And I mean, so much of what you'd expect from a wee heavy or Scottish barley wine. I know, I know historically speaking, there are a lot of people who complain about whether or not wee heavy is actually a thing. Um, so a strong Scotch ale. Um, it's all those flavors. And then you've got this whole other component to it. Like, and also to me, the other thing that this makes me think about is so legend is that the uh, Duval strain originally started mm-hmm. life off as the McEwen strain. Right. And a lot of the strong Belgian beers that we know today were inspired by Scottish brewing practices. And, you know, because they figured out oh, these guys know how to make strong beer. And so now having this, I can see how thin that line actually is. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, because, I mean, in some ways, this has some Belgian characters to it. And I don't mean Belgian characters as in some sort of off phenol or some unexpected yeast character. I mean that in the sense of, oh, that, yeah, it's right there. It's got some of that fruitiness that you expect in some Belgian beers. Right, and and that really does come from the, the mushrooms combined with that caramelized wort. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's the overall con- uh, opinion on these beers? I, I would almost say you know what you're doing. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, Are, that's qu- quite an honor. Well, I mean, so I've had I've had the Weishroomy before, because um, right. I think you had that at the Portland conference. And uh, the, the Seattle one Seattle. in 2012. Uh, Seattle, Portland, what's the difference? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Los Angeles, San Diego, what's the difference? Prepare for the hate mail. Um, no, I'm kidding. I like both cities. Um, so I've, I've had that before. So like that, that falls in line with the expectation that, that I had from that. The cider is actually a, a real, a real revelation, I think. Um, and also just the fact that it proves my point about crab apples. Yeah. Well, man, you know what? I'm, I'm really happy you enjoyed it because you wrote the book on cider. And, uh, so it, it's a real honor to have you appreciate mine. Yeah. And for people who don't know the whole time when, the whole reason that Danny and I got together, and I think we've told this story before in the podcast, but the whole reason that we started doing things together was because I was busy writing that cider book when the proposal came around for experimental homebrewing, <laughs> and, I, and I asked for your help. Yeah, right, and the rest is sad, sad history, right? Yeah, yeah, all right. I think <laughs> I, I think we should finish these and go answer some questions and do our other bits of business. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, finish up these beers, and when we come back, we will be wrapping up the show with uh, some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other. Stick around. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back. It's the last segment of the show, and we're going to wrap things up by starting with some questions and answers. Uh, Drew, what's the first question? All right. Our first question comes from Patrick Smith, who emailed us from Virginia. He says, I was recently anointed as my local clubs, the Seven City Brewers in Tidewater, Virginia, Barrel King. I like that title. That's almost, <laughs> Barrel King. I like that. Uh, that's as good as Grand Hydrometer. I know. Right? I was going to say, I, I love my title, so I think that's a good title. Uh, we currently have a barrel aging program that consists of one well-maintained sour barrel, currently filled with a grisette, one red wine barrel filled with a dark saison, soon to be a Belgian quad, and two Buffalo Trace single malt bourbon barrels, both on second fills with a white stout braggot and a wheat wine. 
And by the way, can I say, they've got more barrels than I think our whole club does in the Falcons. Yeah, really, man. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, the wheat wine is five months into its barrel, and I'm thinking what should follow it into the barrel. My initial thought was a Scottish 80, since it would be big enough to handle both the long aging and the oak from the barrel. Being the third beer to go in, the bourbon should mostly be gone by now. What would you suggest for a beer to go into our barrel? Denny. I think you should do a Flanders Red, because I love Flanders Red aged on oak. Uh, I had a couple when I was in Belgium. Uh, Freem up in Hood River makes an amazing Flanders Red aged on oak that may be one of the, the best beers I've ever tasted in my life. So uh, that's my bias. That's my predilection. I say Flanders Red. How about you? Well, and given that they already have a sour barrel going, I don't know if they necessarily wanted to have a second one. But, I mean, three three turns in a barrel, you're probably going to start picking something up. So I actually think the Scottish 80 is not a bad idea. Although I would say go for go for the, the whole Scotch Strong Ale. Do, uh, do, something, yeah. uh, do something like the Wee Shroomy, but minus the mushrooms because that's going to be too much for you guys. Um, but do that. <laughs> Troy, let me see a five. Let me see if five pounds of mushrooms goes into five gallons and to fill a barrel, you'd need what? Like 50 pounds. Uh, yeah. It depends upon the, the size of the barrel. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. If it's a 50, a 50 gallon barrel. Yeah. That's 10 times. So yeah, that'd be 50 pounds, which would be like $1,500 of mushrooms. No, <laughs> you'd be better off just making a really nice meal with those. Uh, exactly. And so I think actually doing a, traditional that that tracker house uh, clone idea that we were talking about before you know doing yeah. something where it's basically all pale malt with a little bit of roasted barley i think that would actually be pretty good because and the reason why i'm saying it is one it would play well with the wood tones what would you get out of it and if there is any residual spirit character that would play in as well and on the off hand chance that the barrel starts to go funky then you're okay because i think even a little bit of funk will work in there it's just no longer a Scottish yeah. beer. It's now a Belgian beer. And I, so I think, <laughs> I think that Scottish 80 slash Scotch strong ale is actually a really good idea. Yeah, it is. I would also suggest a barley wine, but you just did a wheat wine. So that's probably close to that. Uh, the other thing that I would suggest is something that has now just completely escaped my mind because I've been drinking. So let's move on, shall we? Yes. All right. The, uh, the next question comes from John Bauer of Los Angeles, and it's like short and to the point. How do you know if yeast is viable and able to be used again? All right. And so, what do you do? Well, and so uh, John actually asked this during one of the Multus Falcons meetings, and I promised him I'd get to it. So, for me, how do I know if the yeast is viable? And I, uh, if I remember the context of the question correctly, he was asking about yeast cakes and all that sort of good stuff. And to me, it's go make a starter. I mean, Go, go, go and take a little bit of whatever it is that you're going to use and go throw it on some wort and see if it actually picks up and does anything. Um, yeah, that's that's the absolute best way to be totally assured. Yeah, I mean, you could if you wanted to, you know, and you had the lab skills, you know, do things like staining and, and look at things under a, uh, under a microscope on a hemocytometer and see if you've got all the appropriate activity and the right of ratios of active, healthy yeast. Uh, but at the end of the day, the practical point of view is, Go make a starter with it. Yeah, and I think that uh, the other thing, too, is you can make a darn good guess, uh, especially if it's a first-generation yeast and the beer that uh, you took it from fermented well. You have every reason to expect that it's going to be viable and ready to go again. Uh, 
I don't know about you, but my experience has been that almost all the time it is. I can't remember if I've ever really run into a slurry that wasn't viable and I had troubles with. Have you? Not unless you're pushing it to extremes. Yeah, right. I mean, as long yeah. as you're being a reasonable person and like trying to get to that cake within, say, a month and you're you know, not taking it off of some super high-strength beer – Yeast are surprisingly hardy little uh, bugs. Yeah, right. I, I have had more issues with you know the yeast going bad and picking up a contamination or something like that than I have with uh, a loss of viability. And if your yeast is contaminated, you'll know as soon as you open your container and take a whiff of it. All right, and so our next question comes from Chris Julson, who says, dry hopping during the tail end of an active fermentation versus dry hopping after fermentation is complete. Do you have any experience with this in a Saison? And this is obviously for me. Chris wrote to me. I was going to say, yeah, if it's Saison, this is yours. And Chris, I hate to disappoint you, but no, I have no experience. <laughs> so I, I'm, I can, I can, I can generalize and say that personally, I do not like dry hopping during fermentation and that Drew and I have both gone now to dry hopping post fermentation. Hmm? Well, I mean, and I'm wondering if some of it is, is the idea about, well, okay, are they trying to do – is Chris trying to do dry hopping a la biotransformation, say like a hazy IPA, and do the Saison strains have any sort of evidence of biotransform? I haven't I haven't seen anybody talk about that, and I haven't done it myself, so I can't really speak to that. The other possibility is, hey, can uh, can you do this to drive you know, any O2 that's entrained in the pellets out or you know get it absorbed? And also avoid having to do a transfer over to secondary. Um, so um, I'm just trying to think. I I haven't yet been that concerned about the O2 and trained in a hot pellet to actually actively worry about this and try and do it. I know that is the thing that is done at the the professional brewery levels, and I even joked around with Matt Brendelson about how to do it with a at the homebrew level with a two liter soda bottle. Um, but yeah, uh, unfortunately, Chris, I don't have any experience doing this. So that now means I'm going to turn around and put it out, out to y'all who are listening. Anybody out there done it? Has anybody out there actually done dry hopping in a Saison while the primary fermentation is still going on? Did you see any benefits? Did you see any biotransformation? Did you get a haze? Tell me your stories, people. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Right on. Okay, our last letter comes from Daniel Grossman, and he says, Hi, Drew and Denny. My name is Daniel, and I'm from beautiful Cape Town, South Africa. Just blows me away, man, how like we're sitting here and there's people all over the world hearing what we're saying. I'm sorry, guys. I just want to start off by thanking the two of you on an amazing podcast. I've recently climbed back into homebrewing after a six-year break. I used to do extract and brew in a bag for about two years as a noob then, and now I guess, but I have gone into the realm of all grain, and I've been binge listening to your podcast from the beginning for the last two months now, and I've only just finished listening to your episode 107, the Maltos Falcons 45th anniversary. And I just have to say, Daniel sounds amazingly normal for a guy who's spent two months listening to the podcast. Yeah. 
Anyway, I actually had a question about a hop sold by YCH, which is called Pacific Crest. I purchased some from a local homebrew store to try out as I'm experimenting my way through everything that Allgrain has to offer. I have now found no experienced reviews on this hop. Yes, YCH gives you a profile on the hop, and a few other sites give a similar profile, but no actual brewed experience. Pacific Crest is one of the cheapest hops my local store sells, and when asking them about the hops, they said no one really buys it, but no one at the store had actually brewed with it. I opened the pack to smell it, and it has a massive fruit aroma to it, like super citrus. I had also purchased some CTZ, which I will be using as a bittering hop in my brew in a few days, which has a similar citrus aroma, but it was subdued heavily compared to the Pacific Crest. I then decided to make a hop tea to compare. The Pacific Crest lost almost all of its aroma, the bitterness was very low, not a lot of flavor, if any, and the hop drops out of suspension very quickly, leaving a near-clear liquid after a few minutes. The CTZ kept most of its aroma, gave a solid bitterness, and stayed in suspension in the tea. So after all of that, would it be safe to say that Pacific Crest doesn't give much in aroma or bitterness and should only be used in very light-style beers? <laughs> well, here, you know, you hadn't found anybody who has any uh, real experience with it, and I think now there's like two more of us, right? Yep. Well, and so just to put it out there as a point, Pacific Crest is not a hop variety, and looking at the notes about it uh, from uh, Yakima, it is um, it is actually a blend. So it's it's one of uh, YCH's uh, blends. And, so what what's in it? Does it say? Uh, I'm not seeing what they say is in it, but what they are actually talking about is uh, as a replacement for Zotz, Fogel, and Tetanang. Right, which well, that would explain a whole lot right there, wouldn't it? Right, and so and looking at it, it's like three point nine percent alpha acids, right? And the total oil on it is 0.5 milliliters per hundred grams. And I think he said what he was using CTZ as a um, comparison. That's what he was comparing it to, yeah. Right, and so to give you an idea, CTZ normally comes at like fourteen point five percent alpha acids, and the oil is more like four point five milliliters per hundred grams. So yeah, the fact that the Pacific Crest blend showed very subdued aroma in comparison to the Columbus when actually activated it makes perfect sense. It's right there in the numbers. Yeah, it is, you know, and uh, as as you found, Daniel, just uh, smelling the, the raw hops doesn't really tell you a whole lot, and even even making those hop teas is really only a way of kind of comparing one to another, and you won't really get any definitive impressions out of it in terms of flavor or aroma. You'll just be able to say, well, this has more of this more or less of that, which is kind of what you did. But seeing as how they uh, came up with it as a replacement for noble hops, mm-hmm. your results are just about what I'd expect. Yeah, and, and uh, Yakima's... Uh um, description on it. They say, uh, this blend connects the classic noble varieties with an American influence, bringing together grassy, earthy, and tobacco characteristics with mild, floral, spicy, herbal, and pine. And it says it works well in Pilsner, Lager, and Pale Ales. Um, although I'd be curious yeah. to see how that would work in a Pale Ale with the, that low oil and more of the noble characters. But hey. Yeah. You know what I would do, Daniel? If it was me, I would make a beer using only those hops and see if I could get a handle on exactly what they brought to that beer. Uh, but 
as I said, we have absolutely no experience. You're the trailblazer, man. Uh, if you've used them, please send us an email and let us know what you thought. Yes, once again, we're going to crowdsource the knowledge and the reactions here. So if anybody out there has used Pacific Crest from YCH, let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Okay, moving on now. It's time for a quick tip and something other, and Drew's handling both of those this week. Yep, my quick tip is, well, it's no surprise. It's something that we should all be doing, but it always serves to be reminded of. Uh, clean now. Don't let your glasses, bottles, and kegs sit for too long. Kegs, you get a little bit of leeway on because you can store them under pressure. But I've, I just keep reminding myself, like, oh, yeah, I wish I'd cleaned that beer glass last night. So clean your beer glasses. And also your bottles immediately. Yeah, it's it's easy to do. Just at the very least, rinse them out, and it will save you a lot of time and hassle later on. Absolutely. Something other now. So what have you been into? <laughs> well, I obviously have a lot of time to to play around and do things here, right? <laughs> um, but I have been trying to do some things in my downtime to keep myself mildly sane. And one of them is I've been digging into the work of a comic book writer by the name of Greg Rucka. And Greg Rucka is primarily famous for doing a lot of stuff at DC. And I went digging through three of his different comics, uh, one of which, or actually two of which, are now being developed as um, TV properties. And one of them actually was already released. And that one was The Old Guard, which was released as a movie with Charlize Theron on Netflix. And kind of awesome, and deals with semi-immortal warriors, which is kind of cool. And he had another comic book series called Lazarus, which also deals with sort of semi-immortal warriors. He may have a theme here. Um, but it, the, both of those comics have been really good. I actually really dug the Old Guard movie on on Netflix. It's a good you know sort of popcorn movie for about two hours. And then the third thing, which also just got greenlit as an adaptation, I think it's going on Hulu, is he worked on in the early 2000s, a f comic series that ran for about four or five years called Gotham Central, which may be one of my favorite Batman-related things ever done because it's a whole a whole series that focuses literally on the police detectives of the Gotham Central Police Department and the major crime unit and how they work in a world that has Batman and all of his crazy villains. And so it was a real revelation and a real great read. I'd read parts of it before, but I went back through and I actually power-read the whole series. And I can't wait to see what it looks like when it becomes a TV show. Sounds interesting and cool. Yeah. And so, again, that's The Old Guard, Lazarus, and Gotham Central, all written by Greg Rucka. And then the other one, I know Denny hates this, but my wife... Oh, my God. I can't even believe you're going to mention this. It says so much about you. Yeah. But my wife and I have, you know, again, stressful, anxious times. And so sometimes during stressful, anxious times, you need something completely, utterly ridiculously stupid to watch and take your mind off of things. And that is something that we've discovered recently on Netflix is a game show. If you can call it a game show called floor is lava. And it is literally teams of three, three teams per episode, trying to race their way across a room full of oddball obstacles while trying to avoid falling into the, the floor, which is lava. Uh, or fake lava. And it's just, I mean, look, I, I will, be, I can hear Denny's judgment. I can hear it. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, man, I'm, I, it's a good thing you can't see the expression on my face. Yeah. I will admit there is absolutely nothing intellectually redeeming about this show. 
There's some stuff about the editing that is annoying as hell. There is a lot that is just dumber than dirt about this. But at the same time, at the end of a long day, during an anxious period of time, it also has just been making me laugh a little bit. And I will take that. So, Floria's Lava on Netflix, Drew approved with caveats, Denny disappointed in. Uh, yeah, I, I think that probably it's one of those things that the more you watch it, the dumber you get. I don't know. I, I got I got intelligence to spare. <laughs> well, that's a good thing that you, you started off with excess because uh, you're losing it every time you watch it. Woo-hoo. Oh, all righty, everybody. Thank you for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. I'm on a bunch of different forums out there, uh, mainly the AHA forum. But you can also find me on Brews Brothers, on Facebook, uh, on uh, the Beer Garden forum. New forum started up. Uh, nice one, too. A great bunch of people. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to talk to each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always leave us a voicemail or a message at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.